this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. You can support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. In this episode, we'll have Simon Rumley, the director of the Crowhurst movie, debuting in March 2018, talk about the filming of the tale of the doomed sailor in the 1968 Golden Globe race. This is one of two movies that Studio Canal is distributing worldwide. The first is uh, The Mercy, which is starring Rachel Wise and Colin Firth. That movie's set to hit theaters on February 9th, 2018. So, of course, Mr. Firth, before he played Donald Crowhurst, played Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, He was the love interest of Bridget Jones in all those movies about her diaries and whatnot, and has moved to becoming an action star in the Kingsman's movies. Uh, But obviously the role of Crowhurst is a very dramatic role, and it is obviously a tragic one about the doomed sailor in the 1968 Golden Globe race, which we're going to have the 50th anniversary coming up, and there's going to be a 50th anniversary race where, like Crowhurst, the sailors will have limited access to electronics and communications, which, after you hear this interview, you might think is a bad thing. So the 1968 Golden Globe race was where the first solo non-stop circumnavigation of the world occurred. That was done by Sir Robin Knox Johnston. Uh, Coming out of that race, uh, Bernard Moutissier wrote The Long Way when he decided to abandon his family and the race uh, to sail one and a half times around the world and spend time in Tahiti. So I'm very pleased to have the director of the Crowhurst movie, which will debut in March 2018, Mr. Simon Rumley, a very accomplished Hollywood director and certainly the first big-time director we've had on the Slow Boat Sailing podcast. I've read several books on the Golden Globe race of 68 and the Crowhurst story, and I am sure to watch both The Mercy and the Crowhurst movie when they come out. First, let's hear a word from our sponsor for this episode, Mantis Anchors. I noticed you guys have a lot of cool products. One was the underwater light. So we have a waterproof light. You can recharge it in its case. It has just a simple USB cable. It's good for uh, 30 feet underwater. So it's really nice if you need to go under the under the boat and check your hull, um, do any inspections or check the prop. It's really convenient. Or even go down, look at the anchor. A lot of times you don't have good light. Um, we've been in situations at nighttime when you've had to dive under the boat because the prop's gotten fouled up. A thousand lumens, so it has really bright light settings on it too. So it really lights up the um, lights up the area well. That was Deneen Taylor of Mantis Anchors. You can get that and other fine Mantis gear at mantismarine.com or the link in the show notes. So you can see the Crowhurst director Simon Rumley on the YouTube channel. Uh, you know, one of the the things I got for the YouTube channel recently was a stabilizer, an electronic stabilizer. They have some kind of 
cheap ones that don't have any electrical parts, but the electronic ones I think are a little bit easier to use. Uh, I saw the DJI version of a stabilizer, but I'm not rich enough to buy one of those. Uh, but I did get one that I, I like how it works, and it I think will make for a lot better vlogging where we can move uh, instead of be, being stationary when, when vlogging. I think that makes for a, a much more interesting pictures. The other thing I got for the YouTube channel was an extra phone. So I was talking about getting my iPhone 3s working, but I still haven't got them working yet. And, I, you know, I looked at the cameras. The cameras are not that high quality compared to modern phones. And it, it's somewhat of a challenge to get a kind of a high quality video uh, for a few hundred dollars. Uh, but I, I did find the Moto 5GS phone uh, unlocked. And that seems to have a pretty good camera compared to my iPhone camera, iPhone 6S camera. So I, I think uh, that, that'll be a nice addition to have a second good quality camera. I got kind of burned on a camcorder I bought earlier that didn't really have a very good camera. And the nice thing about the the Android phones versus the Apple phones in terms of video is that you can put a micro SD card in them and that makes for a lot more easy swapping of video. I think one of the challenging things for me uh, has been, you know, just syncing the video. Uh, that That is somewhat glitchy whether you're using the the, app, the Windows Photos app or the iTunes app, I've found it's just very time-consuming and often glitchy. Uh, so if you had a, a SD card you can pop in and pop out like you do with the, for instance, the drones, That I think that's a lot easier to do than a syncing a phone. Yeah, the whole Apple thing kind of just annoys me that uh, they're, they're charging so much for storage space on the Apple phones right now when you can get these micro SD cards for so cheaply and they're just so much easier to use than hard storage on a phone. So I'm interested to see how uh, the, the Moto 5GS, which is not a sponsor, the Android phone, uh, works as a uh, vlogging camera. You know, the other thing, and I touched on this last episode, was that, you know, that you kind of get the back and forth with the parts. So if you're kind of getting parts while you're cruising, it odds are your first parts order is not going to be right. It's not going to come quickly. And one of the big benefits of my setup is that I have the time to get these parts uh, and get the parts orders right instead of going back and forth, back and forth uh, while I'm in a remote port where it may be expensive to stay in. Uh, perhaps I would have expensive marina fees or maybe I'd be really bored of being there. Uh, whereas while I'm ordering parts here in the US, uh, while I'm working, and making money, uh, it, it's I think it's a lot easier experience than being stuck in port in your on your boat uh, waiting for parts, which is something that I write about in my book, How to Sail Around the World, part time, available on Amazon. All right, and so I've got my flight to Tahiti, and then I just need to get my flight from Tonga out of Tonga. 
Jenna has her flights uh, with Sophie to and from Tonga in the middle of the summer when she they're going to greet us. And I just need to get my flight out of Tonga for when I'm going to go back home. Last year, I got my flight into Tahiti and out of Tahiti on, on my miles because I have a mileage credit card. But it seems like Tonga is is kind of star alliance, so it's united. And Tahiti is one world, which is American and... This year, American really, I don't think was very good to me. Uh, it, it said that there were no, no award flights out of Tahiti, so I had to pay out of pocket uh, for the flight to Tahiti, which was a real pain given the number of miles I have. I'm switching, kind of switching cards to the United card because I think I'm going to be in Tonga for another year, right? If I haul out the boat and Tonga and that means I I want to kind of fly through the Star Alliance member Air New Zealand seems like the best way to go and that's the way Jana flew in so I have to see when I get credit for the kind of the new card you get those new miles and see when I get credit for that and then I can get the, the Tonga end of the, the, the flight and then to the boatyard you have to get a, a little puddle jump flight uh, but those flights seem very reasonable right now, and I will probably purchase it well in advance. Okay, so if you're still interested in the Jennifer Apple story, I, I would highly recommend checking out uh, the the blogs that I've done, which are very uh, have a lot of research, a lot of original sourcing. You won't find it any other news outlet that I've talked to a lot of sources such as uh, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, the Coast Guard, uh, the FOIA requests that I've done, the Hawaii Department of Natural Resources, all this different sourcing. My uh, One of my more, more recent blogs has to do with the GPS records that Ms. Appel released, but it kind of came out slowly, and she... She told the Today Show former host, Matt Lauer, uh, when she was on back in November, that her GPS records would be able to prove that she was never near Tahiti, and it would be able to prove, essentially, her course from Hawaii. Uh, they did nothing of the sort. They proved the last 48 hours of her voyage, and it kind of uh, lines up with the the FOIA blog that I, I wrote with you that she was kind of sailing a knot, so kind of just drifting downwind. Then she, it seems like from my analysis of her, her GPS, that the boat sped up four and a half knots uh, on average, and it headed due east which is uh, upwind, so she was drifting uh, west downwind and then seemed to find the fishing vessel. Fishing vessel gave her a tow of about four and a half knots, which is not too too much given her hull speed is over seven knots. Uh, so that part of the story kind of doesn't 
add up that they were towing them too fast. And then and then they drift for less than a knot, kind of waiting for the the uh, the U.S. Navy Ashland ship. And the tow seemed to me from the GPS records to only last about 14 hours instead of the 24 hours they reported. But the the thing is that 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 GPS track really doesn't tell you much more than we already knew, and it certainly doesn't prove the story that they were adrift for five months. So I think one of the interesting things about the Crowhurst story, and one of the reasons why I want to talk to the people associated with the Crowhurst movie, or uh, is that the Crowhurst was not seen as a uh, fraud, right? His his trip was not seen as a fraud, that he was giving uh, false position reports. It was only really discovered when his logbooks were discovered, when his abandoned boat was discovered. And so Crowhurst actually uh, was, was careful to keep his logs, his true logs, on the boat easy to find. Uh, and there was only like one logbook he took with him, and I think that was one of the false logbooks because in his uh, end delusional state that he uh, was very into the truth. And uh, obviously he lied a lot uh, prior to that, which made people think that he was going to have the fastest time in the Glo Golden Globe race at the very end. Uh, and unfortunately he did not finish. But even when Crowhurst made landfall in Argentina, that was not what tipped people off to him uh, putting out false position reports. What tipped people off to him putting out the false position reports were those logbooks found in his abandoned boat with him not on it. So it's possible if somebody said they were at sea for, say, five months, and they really weren't, that people on the ground at a place they visited might say that they had met them. That's possible and certainly more likely in this age of Google and rapid internet communications. But another alternative is that, you know, if they abandoned their boat, the boat could be found and maybe the logbooks on the boat could be discovered, which told the true positions or maybe the GPS records from the GPS on board would tell the troop positions. So, for instance, if uh, the Sea Nymph voyage was not accurately reported to the U.S. Coast Guard by Ms. Appel, any inaccuracies might be found from the GPS breadcrumbs not on our handheld, which we've already looked at, which only had two days, but maybe on the, the, the big GPS in the cockpit uh, that might have breadcrumbs there. Alternatively, it could be something in the logs if the sea nymph is ever found. Uh, but uh, Ms. Appel does say that she did take the logbooks with her and take them off the boat. She took a lot of things off the boat, including the handheld GPS. And so those are likely not going to be on the boat in, in the same way that Mr. Crowhurst left all his, but one of his logbooks on the boat. So after Ms. Appel spoke to the U.S. Coast Guard in the Survivor Debrief, which is the bonus episode to, I think, episode 43, she promised them that they would get the opportunity to examine her logbooks in more detail when she arrived in Hawaii. 
Uh, to my knowledge, she has not been back to Hawaii since being rescued by the U.S. Navy. That I interviewed her in New York State is where she said she was. And uh, more recently, I think she's confirmed that she's in Texas. So uh, it's not clear that she'll ever return to Hawaii. And it's not clear that the Coast Guard 14th District in Honolulu uh, will ever examine her logs uh, more carefully than she did in her little over a dozen reported positions which she gave to the U.S. Coast Guard while she was aboard the USS Ashland Navy ship. I'll put links to the relevant blogs in the show notes. The other thing about finding more independent confirmation about the trip of the sea nymph is that will the sea nymph ever be found you know will it sink to the bottom of the ocean will it wash up on some shore and then if it washes up on a shore will it be seen as the sea nymph so i think one of the things i think i've seen uh, a picture of the sea nymph uh stern uh, both from the navy and also from ms appel's facebook page and i've not seen the name cnev painted on it so i think in in my book slow boat to the bahamas i talk about a boat we were trying to find that it was called one thing but that name was never painted on its stern and we had a, a very hard time finding it uh in georgetown in the exumas of the bahamas and that may be true here with the CNEV, that it may have washed up on, on some distant shore in China or Japan, but maybe it doesn't have its name on it. If there's not, you know, somebody searching hard for identifying material, the fact that it has washed up uh, has not, the people who have found it don't know what its name is and who its former owner is. Possible they could find it, with some digging but maybe not maybe they won't find that and maybe the people who find it may not want to find the former owner if they want to salvage it or strip it all right next up let's hear from the director of the crowhurst movie simon rumley but first a word from our other corporate sponsor the sale timer wind instrument sale timer wind instrument advanced features low price Sail Timer Wind Instrument is a wireless solar-powered masthead anemometer. It works with lots of navigation and charting apps. You can raise it from deck level if your boat is in the water, and it has lots of other cool innovations, too. Check out the website to see how it works and get a discount while supporting slow boat sailing if you go to sailtimerwind.com all one word, .com slash slow boat sailing, all one word. Here is Simon Rumley, the director of the Crowhurst movie, coming out in March 2018. You started working on Crowhurst in 2014. Somebody showed you the script. What, what did you yeah, think of yeah. it? So, so basically, I was approached in 2014 by the producer Mike Riley, who's a friend I've known on and off for about, um, since probably the mid-90s. And I, I didn't know, well, I, I'd never heard of Donald Crowhurst then, but I, I read the script. I did some research and, you know, I was, I was fairly stunned by the story. And I kind of went from there, really. I think we were going to shoot it that summer, 
but I, I had another offer of a film that I, I, I accepted instead of Crowhurst. In the end, that didn't happen. So we kind of picked it up again in, in January of 2015 and kind of went from there. What appealed to you about Crowhurst? It, it kind of felt like very much the flip side of, of the British Empire, the kind of daring do that that summarizes, you know, the, the British Empire and how we became, you know, for that period in, in, in history, fairly, fairly dominant. Looking at our history, you'll think that every, everything that every English person or British person set out to do, no matter how ambitious or crazy it was, that we succeeded in doing and of course that that is not entirely the um the truth and donald's story about a man who had all the all the hope and, and um you know desire and ambition to make this a, um, a successful uh, trip you know all the ambition was there but the, the skill maybe was not the preparation was not and, and so things as we know took a tragic turn for the worst really so there's something kind of which i i thought kind of in, in a way symbolized our, our national well our, our country it was about a good man trying to do a good thing but you know somehow failing through no fault of his own well no it's not quite through failing and, and then it ultimately coming you know from good intentions bad things arose basically and, and that, that's something which i think i've done in my other scripts and films um which i think is always a fascinating subject to explore. I think one of the things interesting about Crowhurst is that he he grew up in India, right? So he grew up in the British Empire's India. Before the 1968 race, do you look much into his background in the movie or do you start in, in right the at the film, race? Not, 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 they have a film, not at all. You know, it was a relatively budget film. Um, and I, I think you know, it, trying to explore his, his childhood in India, you know, that, that's more televisual series kind of territory really and so we you know he's obviously known for the race and for trying to sail around the world and failing to do that and then cheating so so we felt that that was the core of, of the story you know i i don't i it'd be interesting to think you know to, to reconsider how much his childhood had a an effect on on the final you know outcome of what happened and of course you know the the, the boy is supposed to shape the man um but i i don't think there's much historical context or, or recordings of of his childhood right. i i know his family moved to england at a relatively early age um, but I, I think between five and ten and I, I i know there's pictures of him dressed as a girl when he was younger but that's that's about all i know of, of his history to be honest in india so when the movie starts does it start on the tigmoth electron does it start uh, as he's starting to launch the boat where did, where do you guys well the film physically starts on the tigmoth electron yeah when, when he's found out that he he has become the, the de facto winner of the race when I, I think the the only other person who was left at the last stages was um nigel tetley who but his his tram ran was sunk in, as, as he tried to sail through a storm. Um, so that's when we start. And then we have a flashback to how he you know, got the money, how he got the boat ready. And, and we kind of we flipped through that fairly quickly um, because we, as I said earlier on, felt that the, the, the more interesting, exciting stuff was really him actually on, on the sea, on the boat, and, and you know, struggling with, with the of limitations of the boat and, and also his own limitations as, as a as a sailor and that and then the guilt that he really you know goes through really yeah so i think i read one count of the crowhurst movie that it was kind of a, a psycho horror yeah 
Yeah, so I, I think I mean, we're obviously very aware that there was a, a, a bigger budget in the film of, of, of the same um, story. And, and I think you know, my background is, is more kind of psychological films and extreme dramas, as I call them. And, and we also had an executive producer by the name of Nicholas Rowe. I, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's, he's, a, he's a, a, a lauded um, British filmmaker, made, made some amazing films and, well, throughout his whole career, but specifically in the late 60s, early 70s. And he, he made um, Don't Look um, Now with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, which is based on a Daphne du Maurier ghost story, which is an amazing kind of um, existential horror kind of ghost story. He, he made um, The Man Who Fell Worth with Dave Bowie, a performance with Mick Jagger. He did another film called Bad Timing with, with Art Garfunkel. Um, and, and he was very, you know, the 60s and 70s were you know, really kind of a, a pioneering time in cinema because they kind of pushed many boundaries, both in, in terms of structure and, and semantics. And so he was someone at, at the very forefront of that. So he was our exec producer, which is very exciting for me because I'm, I'm a massive fan of, of, of Nicholas Rhodes. And, and so in, in having him on board, you know, we, we were very much encouraged to push the film into that psychological territory. And, 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 and I, I think what has, one has to remember is that whilst no one knows for sure what happened to Donald Crowhurst, you know, the, the general consensus is that he, he jumped off the boat and committed suicide, which is, of course, you know, you know, tra tragic thing to um, well to to, to to have done to to consider and, and to kind of think of. But the, the question is, how did his mental state from being a, a you know seemingly happily married man with four children go from a man who wanted to commit suicide? And and so within that, um, shall we say, generation, you know, there, there's a great psychology as to what happened or why did it happen. And, and ultimately, that, that is, you know, there is something very disturbing and, and horrific about that because, he, you know, he didn't set off the journey with, with such intentions. You know, he set off the journey to win. You know, so it, it, it's so beyond the actual, you know, sailing that there's a very tough psychological story there. Uh, I think I read one book about Crowhurst that argued that uh, he had signs of manic depression. What do you think of that it would, in terms of the psychology? Yeah, well, I, I, I think. Basically, you know, what happened at some point he realized that his boat was not strong enough to go around Cape Horn, Cape Cahote and the Roaring Forties and stuff um, because he, he rushed the manufacturer of, of his boat to, to actually set off in time because the race, I think, was, was staggered over a period of three months and you had to, if you had to start during the period, I think, I think it was from June, I can't remember, it was sometime during the summer. Um, so his boat really wasn't as strong as it could have been. He he signed a contract with a financier who said that if he did not finish the race, he would have to pay back the the money that the financier had invested into the boat. Now the the, the race um, the winnings were something like five thousand pounds, and and from what I can gather, the, the cost investment into the construction of the boat was nearer £10,000. So if, if he'd just decided that he, he couldn't finish the race and just pulled into land, he was then contractually obliged to pay this, this financier, a guy called Stanley Best, something in the region of £10,000, which meant that he would have had to have sold his house and, and probably his business would have gone bust. 
and as a father of four children and, and, and a husband, that, that wasn't something that he could um, really stomach. So I think the, the big problem was that, so then he decided to cheat uh, in this race, um, which again, in theory, you know, was, a, was a cunning, obviously dishonest way to, to move forward, but in terms of survival, it seemed like a pretty good way forward. But the other problem with that was that he, he then realized that he had, he would have to sail in circles pretty much for four months to wait for the rest of the contestants to sail all the way around the world and, and then pick up the race uh, around um, you know, um, the, the bottom of Argentina. And he was going to follow them, come last, and, and wipe his hands of, of the, whole, the whole journey. And I think during this period of time, he, he, he was not able to talk to anyone due to the positioning of his boat and, and the signals, where the signals from his radio would come from. So, I, I, so he had to go silent, essentially, for, for four months. So he was basically sailing around in circles for four months with this guilt that he was cheating, with the guilt that he left, left his family. And, and I, I think that weighed increasingly you know, on his psyche, as, as you would imagine it would do on anyone, really, not being able to talk to anyone for four months, let alone when you have these grave concerns. So, I, yeah, in, in my mind, this is what you know, he, he essentially had a, a nervous breakdown, really. And it's, you know, the, the ultimate tragedy is that if, he, if he'd been, if he picked up his his radio transmitter then and, and managed to speak to someone, his wife, his PR agent, and maybe this would have all have been pre- prevented. But he, you know, he had his, his pride and, and, um, and that never happened. Yeah, certainly the isolation uh, was really hard on all these men. Uh, obviously, uh, people know about Letitia's abandoning yeah. his family and abandoning the race. Yeah. In his famous book, The Long Way, you know, Tetley, after he lost his home and boat, committed suicide afterwards. Isn't that right? That's, yeah, yeah. That's so, right. Uh, it was a very, I think it was a very hard thing for even people that didn't have a history of mental illness. Uh, yeah. Well, I, and, and, and it should be stated that, as far as I'm aware, Donald Krohos did not have any any history of mental illness before he left. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it was diagnosed. Uh, if he did, and uh, that I think the author that argued it was arguing that he just kind of did some things that seemed grandiose <laughs> before mm-hmm. he left. Uh, you know, I, I so I've been interviewing these. Uh, ladies who were rescued off Japan, you know, one of the things that they've said, they said to the reporters that where they were, said they were adrift for five months, you know, they had each other and they also had the dogs with them. And that was a great uh, mental help, yeah. which is something yeah. that Donald was lacking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, I, I haven't read his, um, his love books, but, but, you know, I've read snippets from them and, and certainly by most accounts, the logbooks are, are increasingly illegible and, and lacking in sense. Um, and, and, and even, you know, some of the recordings that he, he made, you know, which, which we re- recreate a couple of them in the film, again, they're increasingly lacking in, in real sense, to be honest. You know, I think the interesting thing about the way your movie is distributed is that it's, it's picked up by Studio Canal, and Studio Canal is also making The Mercy, and they're yeah. going to be releasing the Mercy, uh, I guess, in December for in France and maybe February in the UK. Yeah. 
Uh, what what are the, what's the plans uh, for the release of Crowhurst? They are releasing it in, in a very small theatrical version. I think in, in March. We're we're, we're they are contracted with us um, to release it two to four weeks after the, the Mercy theatrically. So that that's at this point, um, you know, what, what will be happening, and then I guess it will go out onto digital platforms fairly soon thereafter. So I think if you you you're thinking of watching the Mercy, you'll get kind of more a a longer form view of the race and maybe of the preparations and his family and maybe in Crowhurst you'll get more of the psychology on the boat. Yeah, I mean I, I haven't seen the Mercy. I mean you know, we, we there there are sections with, with the family and the four children and the wife. So we, we do cut back and forth to them from time to time. But it, it's fair to say that the the majority of our film takes place on, on the boat, yes. Uh, just off Argentina there. You know, when did they end up, when did people discover that he visited Argentina? How long did it take them to find that out? That, that, that's a good question. I, I'm not quite sure when that came out. I know that the funny thing was that they, they, they did not ask for his passport when they found him floating ashore, whoever found him. Um, so whoever was doing their job didn't quite do it as well as they, they should have done. But hey, no, no surprise there. I, I don't know if that was in his, I, I have a feeling that that was in records in, in his logbooks and I think he just he, he stated in his logbooks that he he went to you know he, he had to dock because his again his boat was sinking and when he did dock these, these I think a couple of life um, well um, guards by by the edge of the, um, the ravine that he stopped and uh, found him so I, I don't think they, they they certainly did not know who he was but they certainly did not know that he was in this in this race and of course back then you know it's not like now where we have the internet and you can just discover things at, at the click of a uh, you know uh, of, of, well, at the tap of a, um, of a keyboard in you know in reality there was no sailors from argentina um things you know happened by post or communication happened by post or telephone at, at best and so, so there's no real reason why they they would have suspected him as being you know this competitor and this this big race around the world. The Golden Globe race in itself was kind of a weird construct that I think Crowhurst saw it as a race, but it was really, there were a lot of people that were leaving to do this trip. So after Sir Francis Chichester went halfway around the world in a boat, a lot of people were thinking, well, why don't we go all the way nonstop in a boat? Mm people like the eventual winner sir robin knox johnston has said in interviews that he left regardless they they start they started the golden globe race was envisioned what was it by the sunday times is that the, who was the yeah, sponsor yeah, that's right after he had already committed to go and they just made the rules so that he was automatically a competitor <laughs> yeah i mean, I mean my understanding of, of the Golden Globe race is that um, the Sunday Times sponsored to Francis Chichester. They'd had way more interest in, in his journey than they had anticipated. And then I think when he arrived back in the UK, there were literally thousands of people, you know, um, by the shore, you know, welcoming, welcoming him. Then when he was knighted by the Queen, again, hundreds of thousands of people turned out to that. And I think the Sunday Times realized that this is great PR for them 
and, and so how to capitalize on that, have another race. And of course, as you say, Sir Francis Chichester, he, he sailed all the way around the world, but he made a stop in Sydney. The Sunday Times then decided in their wisdom that they would offer this prize, you know, they would, like anything, push it to the next, next step. They would offer a prize to the first person to sail around the world single-handedly without stopping anywhere. And, and that's how this race differed from anything that had been before. And that's how it kind of was run up um, on Sir Francis Chichester. And Robin Knox was, I think he was, the, I have a feeling that Robin Knox was the first person to leave. And he never expected to, to, you know, be, to, to win. There were two prizes in the Golden Globe. One was for the first person to cross the finishing line on the way back. And then the second prize was the first, that was the person who did the, the quickest, yeah, who captured the quickest time sailing around the world. And that, that was a prize of 5,000 pounds, which is what Donald Kronos wanted to go for. And because the race was staggered over the first day possible and, and still, yeah, and, and come first and, and win that prize, but you could also then be the last person who actually left the race. Um, but because you're the quickest, then you would win the £5,000 prize. So it's, it's a bit confusing that there were two prizes. As it happens, Robin Knox Johnson won both of them because he was the first person to finish the race. And actually, in the end, he was the only person to, to finish the race. So he, he became the, the de facto winner of the £5,000 prize as well. Didn't he give that to Crowhurst and his family? He did, yes, yeah. And, and something that you know, we, we as filmmakers were, were keen to do, and, and I think kind of very much echoes his, his thoughts and his actions, is that I think somewhere he, he said, you know, history should not judge Donald Crowhurst too harshly. And certainly, you know, for all, all the, all the you know, bad things he did, you know, we, we felt that essentially he was a good man following his dream, and indeed he should not be judged. Too, too harshly. You know, although we've detailed the, the psychological descent, you know, in the end, we've, we've still, you know, done this with 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 respect and, and kind of you know admiration for him really, and, and and what he what he tried to achieve, actually what he did achieve, because he did sail, you know, he didn't sail around the world, but he, he, he did manage to sail down to Argentina, which in, is is no mean feat. So why do you think so many people? have caught on to this story? Why are we still talking about this 49 years later? Why is, you know, there have been so many theatrical productions. I mean, for instance, Deepwater, yeah. The Mercy, and your Crowhurst film. What, why is it uh, still resonating? Well, I, I think, I suppose it's, it's interesting now because, as you know, that they're, re, that they're um, relaunching the Golden Globe race again. And it's going to it's going to take place next year, I think, in June. The, the contestants are going to leave from France rather than England, and and there's been a lot of interest in that. And 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 what one of these things that's interesting about their competition is that even though they, they the safety measures are a lot stronger, and there's still the ability to to communicate if if any of the sailors are in um, you know dire straits. They the, the whole point of the race is to to start well to to, to to enter the race with boats that would have been um, applicable, you know, and around in 1968. Um, so there's something, you know, I guess life has speeded up very much so in the last 10, 15, 20 years with the advent of of the internet. And and, and suddenly, you know, though, though you know, 20 years ago seems old-fashioned, and 
as much as there was no internet, um, there were no mobile phones. So I, I think that this seems like one of the, the kind of last great challenges um, at, at that point in, in history when we didn't have we didn't have technology as as a state. You know, obviously going to going to the moon was one, which I I, I guess the first man landed on the moon in was it 69, I think, or, or maybe early 70s. Um, but you know, so so these are you know, man was still trying to break these boundaries, and and I, I think more than anything, you know, again, it, it's it's a, you know we are all you know confronted by nature, you know, whether it's the weather, whether it's the sea, whether it's forests, whatever it is, and you know, nature is still omni om, 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 omnipotent and, and and omnipresent, and I think there's something very much which goes to the core of what it is to be human. Is to challenge, you know, yourself with with and uh, against them in nature, and that's essentially what he did. You know, it was one man against nature. Really, it was one man trying to use nature to his advantage and, and ultimately failing. And and you know, the, the failure meant that the stakes, well, the stakes are very high with his failure. But I think it's something that we can all appreciate and understand. And there's something kind of romantic in the notion of what he did, but ultimately something incredibly tra- tragic in the eventual outcome. So I think it's something that, you know, whether it's sailing around the world, whether it's just going, you know, climbing up a mountain, or skiing down a mountain, whatever it is, you know, I, I feel it's something that we can all kind of understand and, and you know, both both his, his hopes in achieving what he did and, and, and also, you know, the, the failure in, 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 actually, in actually trying to um, achieve, achieve what he did and failing. So I, I, think, I think it still seems that there's, a, you know, it's very much at the core of the human spirit, really, what he did, and and as I said at the beginning, you know, it, it feels like you know with the British Empire as it was, you know, everything everything was very easy. You know, you'd, you'd do this or you'd do that, and you'd succeed. And failure was not an option. But of course, you know, failure. You know, when you're trying to do something, no matter how big or small it is, you know, not being able to do it is always an option. So I, I think that's something which is also very resonant in his story. So I think one of the more challenging people, uh, things that people say about filming is to film uh, a movie on the water, right? So everybody talks about what a, how a big budget film Waterworld was and, and many yeah. other films like that. Uh, how were you able to, to capture filming on the water uh, with what was not a, a huge budget film? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, 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 we had a lot of discussions about how best to do it and we were looking at Shooting it in a water tank at one point, then we're looking at using a green screen at another point, and in the end, it just seems that the best and easiest way to do it was to actually go into the ocean and film it. And one of the reasons we could do this, what is essentially a low-budget film, is is that you know it is a man and his boat at sea, and and you don't. One of the great things is you don't need possible crowds or extras you don't need lots of locations or explosions or anything so so um in the end that's what we decided to do and we, we shot in and around the bristol channel uh, which is actually quite tough because it, it has a massive tide i think it's the second strongest tide in the world which we didn't know when we started off but um so that in itself caused a few few issues we, we got around them, and I think it's certainly when you when we went on on board for the first day, it took, took everyone a good morning to to really you know get to grips with with actually being on the boat and filming. And, and we'd had a we'd had a practice in in, in, in port, but we hadn't we haven't done anything 
out in, in the proxy. And in the end, we were filming in up to Gale Force 7. So that, that was that was pretty tough in, in itself. You know, not only was someone sailing the boat, but there was a cameraman, there was a sound man, there was a, there was a focus puller, there was the director, there was you know, the actor, and then there were two people actually sailing the boat on what was not a big boat. So it, it certainly brought its challenges. And we were very lucky, really, with the weather because it, it could have been that it, it was just like non-stop sunny or it could have been non-stop raining. But I think, you know, we had, I think, five days of filming at sea physically on, on the exteriors and and we managed to get everything from dead calm to force seven so we were very lucky in, in terms of you know getting that that mixture of, of weather which otherwise would have been slightly kind of screwed really and i think in the, in the end the other thing is like when you're shooting on, on land and, and you're normally shooting you know you have a shot list and you know what you need to get to make that scene work and you tend to prepare for that and and work towards that but on sea everything kind of goes out the window so so one of the things that I was careful to do as a director which what was really film as much as possible so we try to film the scenes that we needed to film but also you know when when the weather was wrong we, we just filmed our actor Justin uh, who played the pros, you know um, improvising stuff whether it's just looking out at the, the the view or whether it was drinking or eating or singing or whistling or climbing up a mast or fixing stuff so so we shot as much as we so that when we did come to edit it some of the things that we weren't able to film we could somehow kind of get around in the edit and how did you find the the tinmouth electron the the trimaran that you used for the filming how did you come across that how did that work out we were again actually very lucky um because that was one of the things that we weren't really quite sure how we were going to work out was how to initially we had a bigger budget than what we ended up with and we we actually were going to get someone to re recreate the, the actual tinnitus electron in, in its exact size and shape but when our budget got cut that, that went out the window so actually our producer Mike managed to find someone who owned a 1969 train ramp so although it wasn't you know exactly what Crowhurst sold in, in terms of you know what we needed, it was as close as, as we were ever going to get. So so the, the, the skipper was a guy called Charlie, and he was very amenable to to letting us film on on, on his boat. We you know, spoke to him about the historical detail of, of what would have been used then and what wasn't used then, and we we changed his boat accordingly, and and, and that was it. And, and that was you know obviously a seaworthy boat. So yeah, we we were very lucky that made our lives immediately easier than a microphone. So what was the name of the 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 Tinmouth Electron in real life? <laughs> Good question. You know what I actually don't think I know because I think I think I saw the boat once before we started filming on it. How many boats did you need to film it? Did you just film it on that boat or you had several chase boats too? No, we we had one one kind of safety boat for insurance purposes, and, and we had, and that, but that was it. And, and so the producer was in that boat with, with the safety team, and then the rest of the crew were on, on the main boat. And so again, it was, it was a very small team, to be honest. And we considered using drones and stuff, but, but in the end felt that it wasn't kind of that kind of film. And again, because it was more of a psychological film, we wanted to stay very close to, generally speaking, close to 
the action and the, and, and the sailor and, and stuff on the boat. So, yeah, you know, I, I think probably we spent maybe two days filming from the safety boat and then, and then about five days filming on, on the actual exterior of, of the boat. So what were some of the problems that Crowhurst had on his boat that uh, caused him to, to not go around the Cape of Good Hope? I, I, I think the main one was the flooding because the boat was rushed. I don't, I don't know why it was wrong, but my recollection is that the, the, the manufacturers had forgot to put a, a protective layer, um, or, or a protective water-resistant layer inside the actual hull of the boat. So, so, so the water was constantly seeping through, and, and there were screws loose all the time, there were, there were wires hanging everywhere. So it, it was just basically not properly finished. But the main one was, was the fact that it was just going to sink. Um, and, 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 I, and I think one of the big problems was that he also, uh, there's a thing called a heliflex hose, which is kind of a, a baler, which, you know, I, I guess all boats, you know, take in some water, that's, you know, from time to time. But you have, you know, balers to help you get rid of the water. Would, again, would have made his life a lot easier, but he didn't even have one of these. So as far as we can work out, he physically had to manually throw all the water out, which, which you know, there's no way if you're going to be going around massive storms in, in Cape Horn, be able to physically bear all the water out when you're still trying to sail and, and stay afloat and stuff. So that, that, was, that, was, that was pretty much the main reason, as far as I'm aware. The film should be coming out in March, so you would hope that they would have really getting that kind of stuff out now, really. The intended distribution is in in theaters, uh, not maybe TV, for instance, here in the U.S. Should we look for it in Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that? I, I think in the U.K., I, I, I know Studio Canal have a distribution deal with Amazon in the U.K., Amazon Prime in the U.K. As far as I'm aware, it should be coming out on Amazon Prime in the U.K. In the U.S., Again, I don't know what's happening. I know, I think our sales agents have been talking to some companies in, in, in the US, but I, I don't think anything has been confirmed as far as I'm aware. But not everyone tells me everything, so I, I could be wrong. As a patron, you get access to bonus episodes and free audiobooks, and one of the perks for this month will be getting access to the bonus episode with Nadine Slavinsky. We heard her in episode 43 talk about the Society Islands, but in the bonus episode for episode 45, she's going to talk about the Cook Islands and cruising in Tonga. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, go ahead and write a rating or review in your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.